Anyways, it's not in there, but you'll see. That would have been good for my sermon this morning. Well, it's the middle of the semester. Uh, the college students are busy writing papers, gearing up for final exams or midterm exams, um, probably doing group projects. But the question I've got is what's really on their mind this week? What is everyone thinking about this week? What? Spring break. Everybody's looking for spring break. That's what we want this week. We want a break from all this hard work. And I would say that not only the college students are looking for spring break this semester, or at this point in the semester, um, the other students, high school students are looking for it. Um, Everyone's looking either for this spring break or you're trying to think about the summer. What are you going to do this summer? You have vacation planned this summer. Um, maybe that'll be two weeks as opposed to just one week here. Um, maybe others of you are gearing up for retirement, a break from all the work that you've done over your life. Our culture wants us to think only about taking a break, it seems to me. Uh, the culture is constantly saying things like, you deserve a break today. Um, everywhere we go, it's uh, take a break from all this hard work that you're doing. Just rest a while. But my question is, is that what we should be doing? Should we be focused on the breaks that we get in life? Should we be focused should everything you do this week be focused on your spring break next week? Or should you be just longing for your summer vacation? Should you be working your whole life just so that you can retire? I'm going to say this morning that we shouldn't have that as our number one focus. What we should be doing is doing our work heartily as unto the Lord and waiting for a break, a rest, in another time, really in another world. I want you to look in your um, Bibles this morning at Hebrews chapter 10. This is page 174 in the Pew Bible. And again, that's the New Testament section, the back almost to the end of the Bible. This morning, what I'm going to be um, arguing for is that what you really need is not a break, but what you really need to do is endure in your work. Let's read Hebrews 10, chapter 35 and 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Before we begin, um, let me pray for our time here. Father, we do see throughout your whole word that ours is a time of labor and work. And doing that heartily is unto you. Lord, I pray that as I work through this text this morning, that you would help us to understand why it is that you want us to do our work as unto you. And what is the reward that we are looking forward to. Help me as I speak, and these as they listen. In Jesus' name, amen. The biblical principle that I want to focus on this morning is that we do have a greater need today to endure in the work that we have before us than to look for the rest, or at least look for rest in this life. And I'm going to do this by showing a couple things from the scriptures. The first thing that I want to show this morning is what in our text is meant when it says, that you should be doing the will of God. 
And I'm going to argue that doing the will of God in this text means to do love and good deeds, or to be loving and to do good deeds. The second thing I want to show is why that would require endurance. Why would uh, loving others and doing good deeds require endurance? The last thing that I would then focus on is what gives us the strength to endure? What is it that will help us to endure the hard work that I'm going to be pleading for this morning? And I will argue that that endurance will come from you're looking to the reward. You're looking to heaven. Okay, so the first thing that I want to show is that the will of God is for us to love others and to do good deeds. And I see this in the broader context of this epistle in the book of Hebrews, specifically still in chapter 10, but verse 24. There we are told to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. But why do I make the connection between this verse and the passage that we're looking at this morning? The reason is, is because other places in Scripture, we are told that this same type of thing is, is explicitly the will of God. If you were to look in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 11, and some of the following uh, verses, you would see, it says, Therefore, encourage one another to build up one another, just as you are doing. The same thing that we have in Hebrews, to uh, consider how to stir each other up in love and good deeds. But then it continues, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. In other words, don't let them be idle. Tell them to keep working. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So there in 1 Thessalonians 5, we see that the love and good deeds is explicitly connected to the doing good to one another and to everyone. But now I want you to consider our text for this morning, back in Hebrews 10.36. For what it says in verse 36 is, You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And I wonder if this sounds strange to any of you, that to do love and good deeds would take endurance. I think it might sound strange to some of you because we don't necessarily always think of love being something that would be hard work. But it does require hard work. And again, from the, from the context, I think we see this. In verse 24, it says, um, okay, in verse 24, I think what we see between here and some other spots in chapter 10 is that love and good deeds is always very time consuming and tiring. It is not something easy. But I'm, I think that in the church today, we often have a very low view of what it means to love others and to do good deeds. Today we hear quaint little sayings such as, practice random acts of kindness and senseless acts of beauty. Another way that I've been thinking about this is, I think sometimes we can see the little figurines that you might see at a Christian bookstore, the um, precious moments, figurines, kind of cute little things. And that might, you might look at that and say, oh, that's cute, that might even be loving. But I'm going to argue that something like that could not endure for a second the love and good deeds that's required from this text. In other words, you have to be strong to do this love and good deeds. This is not something that is light or, or flippant. And why do I say this? I say this because back in verse uh, 32 of chapter 10, we have 
an example of what love and good deeds are. In verse 32 of Hebrews, it says, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation, and partly by becoming shares with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Now you can begin to see why love and good deeds requires endurance, because it's not easy. It requires that you suffer with those who are suffering. You might not have realized this, but Jesus also taught his disciples to endure hard things. We might just think of Jesus as teaching his disciples maybe how to do love and good deeds or how to take care of the church. But there are parts of the, of the Gospels that show that Jesus is actually teaching his disciples how to endure hard things. I want you to look this morning at Mark chapter 6, and we'll see here an example of Jesus teaching his disciples how to endure, what's involved with endurance. In Mark chapter 6, what we have is the disciples being sent out by Jesus on a short missions trip. We're not told how long this missions trip is, but what we're told is that the disciples are sent out two by two. And they go out through the region of Galilee. And as they are going, what they're doing is they are healing the sick. They are casting demons out and that they are preaching that people should repent. This sums up, again, what it is to do love and good deeds. And we'll look at, some, at how that works a little bit later. But they are, being, they are doing the works of love. They are doing good deeds. However, they are also getting very tired, because this is very time-consuming and tiresome. In fact, as I thought about it this week, this little missions trip that they are on, isn't that far different from what Adam Spady just got back from. And I don't know if you know this, but when Adam got back from that trip, he was, I believe it was because he was tired. I, I, I should have found this out, but I think he took a week off from work when he got back. In other words, when you go over to Africa and you pour yourself out for other people, it is going to be tiring. I'm, this the work that I'm telling you to do, that I'm saying that we must do together, is very tiring. And indeed, what we'll see here is that the disciples were tired after this short missions trip. Look at verse um, 30 and 31. This is when the disciples came back to Jesus after having done their work. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Now you can see that this work was very exhausting. For why else would Jesus have suggested to them that they come away by themselves to a secluded place and rest? In fact, Mark shows us why the rest was needed. It was because they had been pouring themselves out to such an extent that they did not even have time to eat. They're just going and going and going and it's not stopping. On the surface, it may look like Jesus is very concerned for the physical welfare of these men. In other words, when they get back, what Jesus says to them is, Okay, guys, you've just done my work. Now come away by yourselves for a little while. And let's rest a while. Give yourself some rest. I'm not convinced that Jesus is that concerned with the rest of these men at this point. And we'll see this as the text works out. What it seems to me is Jesus is rather teaching the disciples what it's going to mean to pour themselves out for others and to endure I want to say this because if you look down at verse 31, 
when it says, come away by yourselves and uh, rest for a while to a secluded place, that was just the beginning. But if you look at how the rest of the day turns out, I'm going to show you that these men never get rest. Let's look at this. After they had gone across the sea, they got into a boat, they went across the sea, and they're looking for a secluded place. The problem is, if you read the text, what it says is, before they even got to the other side, to this secluded place, the whole region saw them. And they went before them, and wherever the disciples went, wherever Jesus went, this crowd amassed. So that when when Jesus came in the boat, and then the disciples came into the boat, as they got off this boat... An enormous crowd was there. Actually, we'll see later in Mark is that this crowd was made up of at least 5,000 people. And that says it's just the men. It was not even the women and children. Um, So this crowd is enormous. In Mark 6.34, it says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now remember, they went over this sea to go find a secluded place to rest. What happens is as soon as they get there, they begin doing work again. And I can imagine that the disciples at this point are starting to get very concerned. Because they've just had several weeks of pouring themselves out. They've just been promised by Jesus, their teacher, the one whom they long to be with, that they're going to get some private time with them. I think of it as kind of like a they've been promised a mini-retreat. If you have somebody that you respect, say a teacher that um, you've enjoyed spending time with, you can think, what would it be like if that person were to say to you, hey, let's go off for a little bit and have some time together. Um, We'll get some rest. We can chat and get each other up to speed. And then as soon as you got to this place that you had assigned, everybody else shows up. (laughs) Pretty soon you realize it's not happening. This is not how it was supposed to work. Um, In fact, this day, the day that we have here, is the day when Jesus feeds the 5,000. He does a miracle of turning a couple loaves into... um, into many loaves and he he ends up feeding the whole crowd and in the midst of this the disciples are not sidelined in other words even though Jesus probably is doing the majority of the teaching here the disciples are the ones who are asked to go out among this at least 5,000 a lot of commentators say this is probably 10,000 people or more and they're the ones who are distributing this bread and this fish to everybody in other words it's not a day of rest for them Um, Rather, it's a day of love and good deeds, another day of pouring themselves out. If that was it, it might be okay. However, it gets worse. Look back down at at Mark again, uh, verse 45. This is now the very end of the day. They've done another day of hard work. And we see in verse 45 that it says, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and to go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he himself was sending away the crowd. Again, on the surface, it might look like Jesus is giving his disciples a break. In other words, he might be cutting them off a little bit early. The crowd still has to be dismissed, and Jesus is willing to do that. But he's sending his disciples off before the day's work is done. That's not what's happening. Jesus is not letting up on them in this passage. And I want to show this by first looking at the text a little closer. The word made here is not a nice word. It's not a nice word at all. In fact, you might think that this is just kind of your normal word for make or made that you find in other spots in Scripture, such as, He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's a nice word for make. We want to be made to do that. That's that's rest there. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's not the make here. The word for made that we have here 
has a very negative connotation to it. The word's only used nine times in the New Testament. And it always has a very, it's always used in a very bad context. And it means, or at least it has the connotation of to force somebody to do something against his will. In fact, this is the word that Paul uses when he talks about the Judaizers trying to make or force other people to get the Gentiles to get circumcised. <laughs> it's, this is something against your will. This is not what you want to be doing. But then the question is, well, why would the disciples not want to get into the boat and leave the work early? In other words, why would Jesus have to force them to do this? And the reason is because there's a headwind out that night. They're going to be rowing into the wind. They're tired. They've had a long missions trip. They've had now another long day of work. And Jesus is saying, oh, guys, we're not camping here tonight. Get back into that boat and go back across the sea. And by the way, you're going to be rowing into the wind. In fact, the wind was so bad that we'll see here in the text that they end up rowing all night long. Look down at the text again at uh, verse 48. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. So Jesus was making them get into the boat, and he was making them row all night long. The text says that they were straining at the oars. Again, here's another word where in other places it's translated more clearly than straining at the oars. Other places, this word for straining is translated tormented or tortured. So they were tortured all night long by this wind. In fact, we can say all night long because it says the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night, if you look down, if you have the uh, NAS in the pew, there's a note that says this is somewhere between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. 3 or 6 o'clock a.m. So they've been doing this all night long, rowing into the wind, and they're not getting rest. Jesus promised rest. They're not getting rest. Jesus is teaching them what it means to endure in love and good deeds. However, it actually gets worse than that. <laughs> because if you look at your text again, look down at verses 53 uh, through 55 of Mark chapter 6. This is now the next morning. In other words, in one sense you might say, well, Jesus calmed the storm. He calmed the wind when he, Jesus got into the boat. And I would agree with you. Yes, he calmed the wind. In fact, if I, I believe it's the Luke account, it almost looks like as soon as Jesus got into the boat on this one, that they like almost morphed to the other side of the lake. Uh, it just says, and immediately they appeared, or something along that lines at the other side of the lake. So it could look like Jesus is finally giving them a break. But I want you to look at verses 53 through 55 of our text. When they had crossed over and they came to the land of Gennesaret, this is a time frame now. This is the next morning. When they, when they moored to the shore, when they got out of the boat, immediately, immediately the people recognized him. And they ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place where he was. Another day of work. It's interesting if you look at what happened here. The text began with, I don't know if you remember, but in the beginning of this passage, Jesus offers a day of rest because they were so busy and so tired because they did not even have time to eat. Now we see in the text that not only did they not have time to eat, they don't even have time to sleep. Love and good deeds, doing work for others, Loving others is going to take endurance. And Jesus is about the business of teaching these men what it's going to be for them to endure. In fact, what we'll see in other places, such as uh, 
the book of Acts, and I won't be going there. But you'll see that these men did pour out their lives for others for the rest of their life. They did learn the lesson of endurance, what it meant to endure. Um, and it was hard work. I'm sure they look back at these days and were thankful for Jesus doing this to them. Uh, because probably at this time, Jesus is probably taking the brunt of the force. But there would be a day when Jesus would not be there. And they would be now, uh, I guess, taking the brunt of this, of this work. To live a life of love and good deeds is not easy. In fact, it's impossible. We can't live like this day to day by ourselves. But this is the life that Jesus is calling to. For he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Often denying yourself means going without food and sometimes even without sleep. Now, I need to be careful here, so I want to make it clear that what I'm not saying is that we should be practicing some sort of asceticism, some sort of just flogging ourselves for the purpose of making it hard on ourselves. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what I'm saying this morning. What I'm saying this morning is that love and good deeds of suffering for others is always just that. It's for suffering for others. It's for helping others. It's never self-centered. It's always other-centered. And I want to show this also by looking at Isaiah um, chapter 58. In Isaiah chapter 58, the people of Israel were going through the motions of fasting. They were trying to in a sense, flog themselves, to, to humble themselves, to base, debase themselves. But it appears that it was not for the purpose of loving others. It was just this like, way to, um, maybe God will be happy with us if we, if we humble ourselves in this way. If we go without food, maybe God will be pleased. But God is not pleased. Not with that type of fasting, as we'll see. Look at Isaiah 58. And we'll see that love and good deeds is the type of fasting that God wants. In Isaiah 58, verse 5, it says, and this is in response to the way the um, Israelites had been fasting, Is it a fast like this which I choose? A day for a man to humble himself? Is it for the bowing of the head like a reed? Or for the spreading out of the sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an acceptable day to the Lord? And the obvious answer is no. That's not what God wants. He doesn't want us to just humble ourselves. Not in that way, at least. What he wants us to do is love others and do good works. Look at, and I can say this by looking down at verses 6 and 7 of this passage. Is this not the fast which I choose? This is God speaking. To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and break every yoke. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry, and to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover him, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? No, love and good deeds is not painless. They are self-sacrificing acts of love whereby you die to yourself in order that others might live. And this requires endurance. You know, one time the disciples were accused of not fasting. And in Mark chapter 2, the people came to Jesus and they said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? I want you to think about this for a second. The disciples are accused of not fasting. But now that we have Isaiah 58 in mind of what fasting is, let me ask you a couple questions. Who were the ones who were letting the oppressed go free? Who were the ones who were loosening the bonds of wickedness? 
Who were the ones who were dividing their bread with the hungry? Remember that the disciples are the ones who are helping Jesus with the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples are the ones who have just come back from preaching repentance. The disciples are the ones who had been driving out demons and who had been healing the sick. The disciples were the ones who were so busy that they not only did not have time to eat, but they also did not have time to sleep. So then I ask, who were the ones who were really fasting? The disciples may not have been fasting like the Pharisees, but you cannot say that the disciples were not fasting. Indeed, they were fasting in the way that the Lord desired. They were pouring themselves out for their loved ones. Let me ask another question. Why is it so important to look at this life as a time of hard work? In other words, why should we be focused on the work that's set before us rather than looking to rest in this life? And the, there's a, I mean, a very good reason for this. We should focus on the work before us because the well-being and the eternal rest of our friends and family and our neighbors depends on our hard work. In other words, if you don't do the hard work of spreading the gospel to your friends and family and neighbors, they won't get eternal rest. If you take it easy now, they will not be taking it easy later. So I hope it's clear why we need to work so hard. Although we have been promised rest in Christ, we are not to rest until the battle is done. We are to work hard to help bring others into the kingdom. Then, when Christ returns, then we will rest. Again, this might sound too difficult. And again, it should. I hope it does sound difficult. Because I'm not saying it's easy. That's why we need endurance. In fact, I'm saying it's impossible. You can only do this by going to Jesus and finding your rest in him during these difficult and hard days of work. For Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now you might say, how can Jesus say this when he requires such work? And I'll be able to explain it a little bit later when I get more into the application. But I think, I want you to think about this. The ultimate rest that we get when we go um, to heaven is life with Jesus. That won't be a mini-retreat. That'll be an eternal retreat of rest with our Savior. Think back to Mark chapter 6 for a second. Jesus says to these men, um, when they came back from doing the will of God, he said to them that he was promising them rest. However, it's clear he did not give it to them then. In fact, he will not give it to you now. He will give you rest for your souls and he will help you. But he doesn't want you to be focused on that rest. He wants you to endure. Indeed, not only the disciples didn't get rest, but also the men in the Old Testament, the holy men of old, did not receive the promise of rest. In Hebrews 11.13 it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, and having welcomed them from a distance. In other words, if you're looking for all the promises of God to be fulfilled in this life, if you're looking for your rest in this life, you're mistaken. It's not coming here. It's coming in another place. I began this sermon by pointing out that the students at the university in town are all looking forward to the rest that they'll get during spring break. And that's a good example because... Thinking about college itself um, will give us pause for a second. Why is it that all these students and most of, many of you have gone through 
hard days of college, the hard days of studying? Why did you spend hours poring over your books? Why did you spend hours practicing? Why did you spend hours and hours preparing for another day? It's because the hard work that you put in promised something that you wanted in the future. For most of you, that was a job, the job that you wanted. In other words, you were willing to put in all the hard work now in order to get the job that you wanted later. And that's actually how Jesus is saying to do life here. Except for here, we put in the hard work now to get heaven, to get the promised rest later. Um, this is what the author of the Hebrews also says in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 2. He wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Despising the shame, he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, even Jesus looked forward to another time, and that helped him as he endured the sufferings that he went through. And that's what we need to do. That's actually what Paul did also in, in Romans 8.18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So then, I want you to think about something. If heaven, if the other day of rest, if the extended retreat with Jesus doesn't look very appealing to you, you're not going to endure very well down here. In other words, doing love and good deeds is going to require hard work. It's going to require self-sacrificial giving of yourself. And if you don't have heaven in your mind as a place when the rest is going to come, you're not going to endure it very well. In fact, you're probably going to get confused and start looking for your rest here. The question is, is heaven worth it? Is it worth giving yourself now, pouring yourself out for another place? And the answer is, it is worth it. For not only is it a better place, because there our joy will be complete. We will be with our master teacher, our sovereign God, who loves us and who will give us rest. But it won't be fleeting. It won't be just a week or two. It won't be... Actually, as you think about some of your vacations, often they're not very nice. Rained out. Who knows? I've had some vacations. They weren't vacations. That's not heaven. Heaven will be sweet. So what am I calling you to this morning? Well, I want to look back one last time at Isaiah. No, sorry, not one last time. Two more times. But this penultimate time. Isaiah 58, 6. This is uh, 6 and 7. Is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What is the number one way commanded that we are commanded to set captives free? Is it not to proclaim the light of the gospel of Jesus to those who are in darkness? To those who are under the bondage of Satan and his will? To those who are living in sin? Is it not to tell them of another way where they can be free from all this? The first verse, um, verse 6, I see this as more of a spiritual realm, of the things that you can do in the spiritual realm. And that has to do with people's spiritual well-being. Um, I think that means that we need to be proclaimers, teachers of the gospel to our friends uh, and others. Is teaching going to be easy? Teaching's not going to be easy. What you're going to have to do is spend a lot of time learning the Bible, 
You're going to have to put in the time to understand the gospel so that you can present it yourself. And in this time that you are putting in, it's only then that you will be able to do the very thing that God has required of you. Two, look after the spiritual well-being of others. The second thing we have is the physical realm. To divide your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, to clothe the naked, and to not to hide yourself from your own flesh. What are these verses saying? These verses are telling us that love and good deeds is going to be messy. And it's going to be hard. When it says to bring the homeless into your house, does that sound like something that um, will be easy? I don't know if you've, you've uh, had a chance to minister to homeless people. But it's not easy. It takes hard work. Um, Often they haven't showered for a long time. Leslie and I haven't done this often, but um, your house gets messy when you bring somebody in who's homeless. Once we had somebody for a couple weeks and it threw off our any semblance of a schedule that we had. I mean, it just threw our life into, um, I don't want to say chaos, but it wasn't easy. Um, it's not going to be easy, and I'm not saying that it's going to be easy. You need to feed the hungry. Um, I know we have different organizations here in town that a lot of you are involved with, um, but that's the point. You have to get involved with these things. You have to be spreading the gospel for the glory of Christ. Not only that, when you do the second part, the pouring yourself out for the physical need of others, it lends a lot of authenticity to, your, to the first part of your proclaiming of the gospel. When they see that you are willing to pour yourselves out for their physical needs, chances are they'll listen to what you're doing with your gospel. In fact, um, I've already heard about this from the, um, as a result of the small groups that we have. Uh, I've heard about one of the small groups where... Actually, I think it's the, the Hess small group. The families there have been pouring themselves out for others. Um, even within their own small group, they've been pouring themselves out. And in so doing, it has put a lot of credit behind their witness to the, to the love of Jesus. Another thing that you can think about is, what are you going to do with your spring breaks? We heard about one this morning... This, unfortunately, isn't during spring break, but it's, um, it's a short-term missions trip that you can be a part of. Why don't you... Here's a, something you can do. Why don't you take your spring break and do a short-term missions trip with it? Maybe it's too late this time, but uh, I know some of you college students, it's not too late. We are taking a short-term break uh, to go serve another, some other um, fellowships. But instead of planning for taking care of yourself, why don't you think about taking that time and serving others, pouring yourselves out. Again, it might sound like too much, that what I'm asking for is too much, and that it'll be too draining, that it'll be too physically exhausting. However, there is a greater promise, and this promise is sweet. If you look back at Isaiah 58 for the last time, 58, 10, and 11, this is after what the fasting, after, show, after God shows what is required by the fasting and basically seeing that it's almost too much, something that we can't do, God has a very sweet promise for us. He says, If you give yourselves to the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like midday and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give strength to your bones and you will be like a well-watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. 
So that is the promise that you have, and that's the promise that I leave you with. If you pour yourselves out for the sake of others, God will not let you burn out. You will not suffer burnout. Rather, your light will rise in dark places, and your gloom will be like midday. God will satisfy you. He will satisfy your desires, even in scorched places. You will be like a river of life whose waters do not fail. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And though it is a hard word and it requires much from us, and it requires that we constantly pour ourselves out for the sake of others, for your children, both in our families and in our neighborhoods and in our communities and throughout the whole world. Lord, you have promised that you will sustain us in all things. Lord, we ask that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on the reward, that you would help us to think about heaven and to have that as our hope of our place of rest so that it would grant us endurance in these hard days. Lord, do grant us endurance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, with those same disciples, uh, had a special meal, and it was part of the regular observance of the Passover at the time. But Jesus dramatically changed uh, what happened at that meal by fulfilling the entire purpose of the meal, why it had ever been instituted in Israel in the first place. It, it had in the past, before that time, been a shadow, a preparation for the reality that was to come. And so a lamb was slaughtered, and there was a meal that was eaten, and a special bread was eaten. And Jesus, when he brought his disciples together, said, we're going to have the Passover, but I want to explain to you why Israel has done the Passover all of these years this way. It has been in preparation for me, for Jesus Christ to come. It's why, he had them, why God had them to have the Passover. And so Jesus said in the Passover, as he took the bread, this is my body which is broken for you. And so the disciples then ever after understood that when they would take the bread and break it in that meal, they would be remembering Christ. And he took the cup of the wine and he said, this is my blood which was shed for you, poured out for you. So the disciples ever after remembered that now this cup of wine and this meal represented the blood of Jesus that had been shed for them. And it was the instruction of the church from that point on to observe this meal, to remember Jesus Christ. And this morning, as we regularly do, we're going to remember that meal. So if you're here this morning and you're wondering why we're having this uh, very abbreviated meal with some pieces of bread or cracker and some little cups of juice, we're having it to remember Jesus Christ and to remember his death for us, that he died to pay the penalty for our sin, that his body was broken, that his blood was poured out for us, and that he bore the wrath of God on our behalf. And here at Church of the Good Shepherd, we uh, do practice open communion, which means that we invite you, uh, we invite everyone to participate as long as certain conditions are a reality in your life. There, there are a couple of conditions that we ask you not to participate in communion if these are true of you. And one of them is, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, which means you have not yet understood and applied the gift of God through Jesus Christ to your life, you're not, you've not confessed that Jesus Christ is your Savior, you've not stood up in front of people and said, I believe that Jesus died on my behalf, and you've not taking, taken the opportunity to be baptized 
in the church. We ask this morning, if that's the case with you, that you not participate in this meal. But I do invite you, I do invite you to believe in Jesus Christ. I invite you to look into the Bible, which you've seen open many times this morning, and see what God has said to you concerning Jesus Christ and your life. And I invite you to believe on him. Secondly, this morning, if we ask you not to take communion if you're a Christian, but you're on the run. And what I mean by that is, if you're a Christian and you have sin in your life, uh, whether or not it's been exposed in your life in another church and you've decided to run here because they found out about who you were, or whether or not, or whether you've always been in this church or have been in this church for a long time, and there's some kind of sin in your life that you are you are uh, reluctant and unwilling to confess to God, that you're unwilling to acknowledge as sin. You're you're being a pretender. You need to be hard on yourself, and if you're being a pretender, you need to refuse when the cup and the bread come through the aisles. You need to refuse to take it because you should not take this cup and this bread if you're being a pretender today. So those are the people who should not take the uh, communion with us, the meal with us this morning. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you have made confession of Jesus and been baptized, if you do acknowledge that you're a sinner, if to every ability you have, you have understood your sin and have said, I know that this is sin, God forgive me of that sin, forgive me of that sin, then this is exactly the meal for you. Because it's in this time and in this remembrance that we really come to grips with who we are. We're not able to save ourselves. We're not able, you and I, to make our salvation happen. It's, it's remembering Christ in this meal that, that brings us back to face the reality that we are, in fact, sinners. And that we do, in fact, depend on Jesus Christ who died for us, for our salvation. So we can't be pretenders. We must acknowledge fully acknowledge our dependence on Jesus as we remember him in this meal. Okay, so I invite you. From 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's words to the Corinthians and to us concerning the remembrance of Christ in this meal. For I received from the Lord.